Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. I hope you guys can hear that there is the sound of a heavy rain. Do you know that when Elijah said this, it wasn't raining yet? They had been in a drought for a very long time because of idolatry in the nation, because of Jezebel who was usurping leadership, all of the things. There was no rain, there was no drought. But Elijah the prophet knows that rain is about to come. And the further part about that verse is he goes out and he sticks his head between his knees and he begins praying. And he sends his servant out and says, go tell me what you see. The servant comes back and says, there's nothing. Sticks his head between his knees. This is a, the, the picture of, re, of repentance, the picture of prayer and believing God. He says, go out again. He says, rising from the sea, I see a, a, a cloud as small as a man's fist. And Elijah knows. And he tells Ahab, Oh, hitch up your chariot and get moving because this rain's going to overtake you. There's the sound of heavy rain. I don't know if you've been following in the media or there hasn't actually been a lot of mainstream media, mostly because it's been resisting it. But there's been what's called a revival happening in Asbury College in Kentucky. Has anybody seen kind of what's happening? If you've been following it a little bit, it's actually beginning to break out in other colleges as well across America. Now, I think what makes this revival somewhat unique, what is this? What, it, what, what exactly is revival? It's actually a, an awakening, not a revival, but I won't go for that definition right now because um, revival is a personal thing that happens in you. Awakening is what happens when people who are being revived come together and there's an outpouring that happens in that room. What we're experiencing is another great awakening. And this is what I love about Facebook. Everyone's got an opinion <laughs> about what's happening in this revival. And whether it's legitimate, whether this is of God, whether this is orderly, whether it's all of these things. And I got to tell you, I really don't have much of a comment about the nature of what's happening or even the fruit of it, right? And everybody seems to have some sort of comment or an opinion on it or how to steward it, or whether meetings should continue, or whether meetings should end, or whether now because it's big enough we should bring in national recording artists. I do love that one of the things that's been happening is they have some of the biggest known recording artists, preachers, and everything. They're like, I'm, I'll come. And they're like, we're good. Thanks. Because what began this is what sustained this. I wish some of them knew, maybe they do, that some of the people, what they're bringing is not that. There's more behind the scenes of some of those recording artists and preachers that certainly don't belong in any pulpit that's got revival happening. So I've seen that what's come out of it's wise. I don't have a comment about it. I haven't been there. 
I'm not going to go there necessarily. What I have found that's interesting is that most of the revivals that we've seen in the last 50 years, whether it's in Toronto or in Brownsville or in a few other places, it's really been marked by miracles. It's been marked by signs and wonders and miracles. Even Azusa Street at the turn of the 20th century was marked by incredible healings in the presence of God, where the presence of God was so visible and thick, it was like a dense fog that was in the room and sometimes would just cover the floor. It's a sawdust floor with wooden benches, but the glory was so present that kids would play with it. They'd try to catch it or play hide-and-seek in the glory. But this isn't that. I'm not hearing any reports of that. I'm not seeing the mass miracles and testimonies, yet people continue to flock to the presence. It seems to me that what's happening in Asbury and some of these other places is not marked by, marked by miracles, not that it's absent of it, and not that those things aren't coming, but it's marked by repentance. And I want to tell you that the small-fisted cloud of Asbury means a torrent of rain for us. It also means that where people would travel the world to go to Toronto, to see the outpouring of what was happening there, travel the world to go to Brownsville, can happen right where you are if you just realize that the cloud of a man's fist in Asbury means a torrent of rain for us here. All I need to know is that if I see it happening there, it can happen here. And from every report that I've seen, what's brought about this revival is the same thing that we've been doing here for five years. God is on the move. He's on the move. I love the, where is he? Is he here today? I, I love um, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, Lewis, in the Wardrobe. And one of the most famous lines that they kept saying is, Aslan's on the move, Aslan's on the move, Aslan's on the move. I used to love that. Well, guess what? Jesus is on the move. There is revival here in our land and it's coming. Why not here? Why not now? This is a revival fueled by repentance. And I want to give you some biblical context to this of why this is happening the way that it is and what I believe is about to outpour here as well. I want to talk to you about John the Baptist's ministry. Luke chapter 3 tells us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one, you may not realize this, John the Baptist is the person, the man, who Jesus said was greater than all of the other prophets. John the Baptist. You're talking Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jesus goes, he's greater than all of them. Spoiler alert, he says, but even the least of you are greater than he is. That's a message for another day. Rummy hates it when I use that phrase. This is what John the Baptist is about. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. You would think John the Baptist went about performing miracles, parting seas and, and casting down, but this is what he did. He went into all the country, across the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, man. You want to grow you want to, like, rocket ship your ministry? Don't choose this as your ministry model. 
You want to preach how to get a million dollars? That's the great way to build a ministry. You want to build a ministry? Don't choose the preaching of baptism or repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not a super popular message. And I know many of you, not you, I mean you as in you in general, get tired of me talking about repentance and forgiveness all the time. I don't care. It's the message of revival. It's the message of revival. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what we already talked about? Um, Elijah, right? Do you know that Elijah, like, wear camel coats and he would eat locusts? Exact same thing John the Baptist ate. He actually ate the same food and dressed the same way that Ezekiel dressed. I don't think he did it on purpose. But he is the next, I keep saying Ezekiel, Elijah, I'm getting it mixed up. Except this is a baptism of repentance. This is a message of repentance. It's not yet a message of power. It's not yet a demonstration of power. But it will be. As it is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. I've got no choice really, in the songs that we sing on Sunday. I don't select the songs. I find out like you do what we're singing when I get here. And I started hearing Lion of Judah, and I just laughed. And I went, that's exactly what I'm talking about today. All valleys be raised up. All mountains be made low. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. The valleys will be filled in. The mountains will be made low. This is a picture of revival. I want to explain to you what that is. Do you know in the Old Testament, God's people began to worship idols and they disobeyed him. They broke the covenant that God had made with them. God did not break the covenant. Man broke the covenant by committing spiritual adultery by worshiping idols. As a result, even though God was patient with them for centuries, he they were overtaken by a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon. Another kingdom came in. He destroyed Jerusalem and took all, not all, took most of those people back to Babylon under captivity. And this happened for 70 years. They were in captivity for 70 years. It's a long time. 70 years as captive in a foreign land because of the idolatry of their heart. When they get to Babylon... The king takes the best of the best. He takes them and puts them into his palace, let them eat from his table. And he fully indoctrinates them into the culture of Babylon. So much so, he even changes their names. He gives them new names to completely strip them of their old identity as the people of God. You will now not just learn about our culture, you will be someone completely different. You were born this, but now you are this. You are a part of us. And the lure for that was not just the whip. It was the food at the king's table. You will eat the best of the land. You will learn the best of the world. You will have the best of what the world has to offer. 
And as a result, they begin to assimilate into this culture of Babylon. And pretty soon, you find some of these people rising in their level of influence, rising in their significance. They're still captives, but now they got some status. I'm better off than I was before. When I was free and in Israel, life was a challenge. And I might be a prisoner now, but at least I got some really good food every day. Look at me. I'm better educated than anybody that's left back in Israel. I've got better clothes on. I've got more friends. I've got more influence. Look at where I'm at. And then 70 years later, the king, Cyrus, issues a decree. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. If there were a person that you think God would have picked to build him a temple, I promise you Cyrus was the bottom of the list. What? Cyrus, he's the enemy of God's people. He's the one ruling over all of us. And yet Cyrus gets a revelation from God. Cyrus is experiencing revival. Cyrus, the king, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, whatever name you want to put it, that's the equivalent of what he was. And then he tells them, verse 3, any of his people among you, may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Wow. Not only are you free to go, Back to the place that is your original identity and destiny. But I'm going to supply you with what you need for the journey along the way. What a great promise. I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I'm like, sign me up. I'm out of here. I don't want to live with these chains anymore. You know what the sad part of the story is? Not all the exiles returned. I think sometimes we read our Bible and get the picture that they all picked up and left, and we're like, yay, we're free. But not all the exiles returned. In fact, Ezra chapter 2, the very next chapter, is a list of the numbers of who returned. They kept good records. And in that number, you'll notice that not everybody left. Babylon to go back. Some only knew Babylon. It's been 70 years. Some of them were born in Babylon. And yeah, they may have heard stories about this place called Israel, but they didn't know it. Some had risen to quite significant levels of prominence. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, high levels of leadership. Because of that, some of them chose to stay in Babylon even after Cyrus's decree. Do you know why? Because even though Cyrus said you can go, 
there was no road between Babylon and Jerusalem. There's no need for one. Ain't nobody going back and forth in that road because what's left in Jerusalem is desolate. And so in order for them to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, there's not even a road. It's a very rough journey full of, guess what? Mountains and valleys. Lots and lots of mountains and valleys. And in order to get from the place of exile and punishment for sin to a place of freedom and worship and abundance, you got to get through a lot of mountains and valleys, one after another. This was not a place that was easily gotten to. This was not a joyful trip. This was going to meet a ton of hard work. And by the time you get back to those who were left in Jerusalem, they may not be as happy to see you as you think they're going to be. They knew that they need to prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. And every mountain hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. I want you to understand that what Isaiah is talking about, it's a picture of an actual road that needs to be built between Babylon and Jerusalem in order for them to get back. That term, make a highway, it, and actually the word highway, do you know where the word highway comes from? It comes because when a king was about to go somewhere to visit one of the places that they've conquered in a kingdom, they would often send an emissary there first to tell them that the king is about to arrive. And sometimes, in order for that emissary to get there, there's no road. So literally preparing the moment for the king to come into the place where he's now taken possession, they have to build a highway. Highway because the king, the high one, is going to the place where he is now going to be present. They have to build the road in order for the king to arrive into the place where he was supposed to go. This is the picture that's being painted by valleys being raised up and mountains being made low and the crooked paths made straight. It's creating a highway for the king to come. What John preached was that the way to make a highway for the king to come it's a message of repentance. You want to create a way for revival to come. That highway is the picture of revival. It's not going to come just because you prayed and believed. It's a big component of it. There are many that have been praying and believing for revival for years but have not dealt with the unforgiveness in their hearts. They have not humbled themselves before the Lord and repented of their sin. <coughs> the decree has been made. Cyrus issued his decree. Asbury is another decree. That small fist there means a torrent for us. But the road back from Babylon to Jerusalem is a road of repentance. 
One of the greatest themes you'll see woven through the whole Old Testament is this phrase, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. That is the definition of what repentance is. For us, the highways have already been built. That's the good news. I'm not a highway construction person. I'm the guy that would be standing on the shovel. You ever seen the highway guys? And it's like, it takes a lot of money to get that shovel to stand up by itself when you see them not working. I'm that guy. Somebody should do something about this. But our highway has already been built. And our highway construction man, his name is Jesus. The picture we have is that he has already paved the way. He has raised up the valleys. He has made the mountains low. He has made the crooked paths straight. Jesus has built the highway for us. His death on the cross is the paving of the road, making it easy for us to get from where we are to God. We couldn't get there. But the road is a road of repentance. Just because he paved it doesn't mean you're on it. And the way the on-ramp onto the highway that Jesus has made is repentance and it's forgiveness. And when you step on that road, it's a highway. He who humbles himself, I will exalt. That's a promise that God gives us. When you forgive others, I'll forgive you. That's the promise. And that promise exists because Jesus has paid the price for us. But you have to leave Babylon. You could no longer stay in the place of prominence, in the place of comfort and expect God to just meet you where you are because he's the God who meets me where I am. <laughs> yes, he does meet me where I am. When I come to a place of repentance, Ezra 2 is a list of those who left Babylon to return to their identity as God's people. They threw off the golden shackles and their identity with the kingdoms of the world and they put on the sackcloth and ashes to repent of the idolatry that led to their captivity in the first place. That's why Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That's, just, that's not just blessed are those who experience the loss and they're mourning for it. No, no. When you mourn for the state of sin that we're stuck in, when you mourn and go, God, I have sinned against you and I give you my whole heart and that mourning process means that you will be comforted. I can picture in my head this road between Babylon and Jerusalem and if I'm the next wave of people going down this road, like someone's already been there before because they went in a couple of waves. I can picture me walking across this road. And as I'm walking, what I'm seeing on the side of the road is not dead bodies. I'm seeing Babylon bracelets. I'm seeing Babylon clothing. I'm seeing all the accoutrements of titles and land and status laid along the side of the road. Because once you begin this road of repentance, you realize, I don't need quite as much as I thought I need to bring. Because it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart that will serve before him. 
All I need is clean hands and a pure heart. And as I'm carrying stuff, I'm, this is not clean. This is not clean. This is not clean. What I love about some of the things you guys were talking about serving down in Penn Ministries, you know, when you do those things, it's not that you feel guilty for what you have. It helps you to appreciate what you have, but realize you probably don't need as much as you think you do. I'm always blown away when I go to these places of how much clothing there is there. Clothing is never a problem in homeless shelters. Our goodwill and our Salvation Armies are so overrun with clothing, they're probably just throwing it away. There are truckloads full of clothing. Do you know why? Because we got so much ridiculous amounts of clothing. People come in van loads full every season here with labels still on it. I didn't even wear it because we just collect so much stuff. I could do for a little more fashion. I know that. I'm all black today. And it's not to criticize if you love buying clothes. But I promise you when you're on the road of repentance, you'll find that maybe there's some things that I thought that I needed in my life that I don't need. And your focus gets off the stuff and onto Jesus. I've got another part of this that I actually want to reserve for either next week or a different week. But I'll give you the title of it. Is that there's battle lines that are being drawn right now. There's battle lines being drawn on both sides. There's battle lines. There's battle lines in you right now. And for some, this is going to start getting very uncomfortable because things that you used to kind of push in the corner, sweep under the rug, they're going to start coming out. Relationships with people that maybe have had a little bit of friction but undealt with, you're going to have to deal with those. You're going to have to face those. Those areas of unforgiveness that may be in your heart, as subtle as they are, they can't stay. That little subtle sin that you've been convincing yourself is okay every once in a while, it can't stay. I've been experiencing quite an interesting week. I've had some interesting conversations with people. And some of them were a little bit frictiony, right? I'm so grateful and I'm so glad. Do you know what I'm grateful? I'm grateful that in our church that we can have friction and resolve at the same time. We can love each other and come to an understanding of each other. Not always agreement, but we can reconcile because of the blood of Jesus. I've talked to two pastors in this area in the last two weeks that have come to me, both of them suicidal. Pastors. Desperate. This has been plaguing me for years, but lately the heat's gotten turned up. I don't know what to do. I'm so glad. You know what I didn't tell them? Let's get you checked into a mental health facility. Let's get you on medication. Let's get you all this other stuff. And I'm not against those things. Do you know what I told them? I know where to start. Do you know what Ezra did when he got to Jerusalem? You know what the very first act that he did was? He didn't build the temple. He didn't even build the wall. 
We love Nehemiah. That's the wall. That's the next book. Ezra shows up where there's no temple, there's no wall, there's no city, and he builds the altar. The temple can wait. Because the temple is just the building that houses the altar. And they sacrifice night and day, night and day, night and day, night and day. God, we want to rid ourselves of everything that's crept into our own hearts. Every last bit of Babylon. And God, if there's still some Egypt in there, we want to get that out too. They built the altar, and they sacrificed night and day. And God did something special in their midst. I'll talk about that one next week. Can we hand out communion? I actually want to do this as we finish. And I actually need one of those too, if you can throw me one. Rob, can I get one of those? Thanks, buddy. Thank you. If you love Jesus, we invite you to participate in communion with us here this morning. I got one. But just ask you to hold on to it because you're actually all going to take it together. (coughs) Now, why do we take communion together? Of course, we know this is done in remembrance of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. The bread represents his body that's broken for us, and the juice represents his blood that's spilled for us. But I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 6 as we close. If you don't have one for any reason we missed you, just stick your hand up if you want one to make sure we get it. Thanks, guys, for passing all that out. There's a moment when Jesus teaches us how to pray. It's a famous prayer that many call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus isn't telling us the words to say. He's teaching us how to pray. So I remember when I was away from God, I would say these words every night. Almost like, as long as I say this prayer, I'm good. You know what I mean? Almost like it's a, it wipes away every bad thing that I'd done before that. It doesn't quite work that way. But yet it still had an effect on me. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, part of this is that Jesus says, I want you to pray like this. Pray to your heavenly Father and say, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's using the idea of debt as an illustration because the debt that we owe God is our sin debt. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We owe God because of our sin, but the problem with our sin debt is we lack the ability to pay it. Because my blood can be spilled, but my blood washes away no sin. If my blood was spilled because of my sin, that's justice. But when Jesus' blood was spilled for my sin, that's mercy and that's grace. His blood has the power, not mine. I love that phrase that he paid a debt he didn't owe because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. So when he says, forgive us our debts, we can ask Jesus for forgiveness for our debts because his blood has already paid the price for it. But there's a key word here that I want you to hear. It's the one in capital letters. 
as. Forgive us our debts. And then we will forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I want you to understand how important forgiveness is to God and how important forgiveness is in this process of revival that he wants to pour out. It is a necessary component, an indispensable component of revival is the forgiveness of your heart. Because in verse 14, just two verses later, Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. I love that scripture. I don't like the next one. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's one of the hardest verses in the Bible. Do you know why that's hard for me? Because that doesn't sound like the God I grew up with. A God who doesn't forgive sins. But yet that's exactly what Jesus says. If you don't forgive others their sins, he won't forgive you. So when we take communion, which is something I want to be doing more, this is a reminder of his forgiveness of me. I don't dare drink this juice in remembrance of his forgiveness of me until I've made sure that I have forgiven anyone who has done wrong against me. I would be afraid to drink this juice and be reminded of the forgiveness of the cross. If there's anything in me that's got resentment, whether it's something I'm aware of, or I don't know if you're like me, sometimes there's unforgiveness in my heart that I didn't know was there but I'm bearing the fruit of it. I'm feeling the effects of it. I'm feeling a disconnect from my wife. I'm feeling a disconnect from other people. I'm feeling a disconnect from what God's doing in the room. Boy, all these other people seem to really be moved. I'm not feeling it today. That's called a symptom. Maybe there's some unforgiveness that's in my heart. Maybe there's a secret sin. Maybe something just creeped in. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying if you're feeling the effects of unforgiveness and sin, it feels like disconnection. It's the urge to run out of the room. It's the urge not to say hello to the person you've never met before because you're afraid it might be awkward and you won't know what to say. That's the effect of it. So here's what I do. Before I take communion, we're going to take the bread together. Because this is his body that was broken for us so that we can be healed of sinus congestion and everything else in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. And before we take of this juice, I implore you, if there's anyone in your heart that you have not fully forgiven, do it now. And join me in prayer. 
Let's ask Jesus. Jesus, is there anyone who I need to forgive? Ask him. Is there anyone I need to forgive? Would you let it go deep? If there's a name that came in your head, you heard it, you saw it, the person's picture of their face popped in your head, you don't have to have a long dialogue. You don't have to remind Jesus of what they did. Just say, Jesus, I forgive them. And I release them. Bless them, Lord. And help me to feel your pleasure over them. And just keep doing it. Once you've done that once, ask him again. Is there anyone who I need to forgive? And keep going until Jesus stops bringing people up. Do you know what? That person he brought up, he might have brought up 785 times before. Forgive him again. Forgiving them doesn't mean that what they did was okay. But it releases you of the shackles of the offense. I forgive them, Lord. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. You know, this is why communion shouldn't be rushed through. Thank you, Jesus. And now before we take this, I tell you what's going to help you forgive. And hey, you're in good company if you're having a hard time forgiving. The disciples, when they were told that they would have to forgive 70 times 7, their response was, you're going to need to increase our faith for this one. You're in good company. But you can pray this. Jesus, would you remind me of what you have forgiven in me? I'm not that person anymore. But if I'm having a hard time forgiving someone else, would you remind me what you forgave in me? Thank you, Jesus. And now if you're having a hard time, just do it anyway. I forgive them, I release them in the name of Jesus, and I bless them. Thank you, God. Let's take this together when you're ready. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Do you know as I sat with one of these pastors, 
who already had a plan on how to end his life. This is what I took him through. There was some repentance that needed to happen, but there was some forgiveness that really needed to happen. And as we went through that same process, there was probably 15, 16 people that this guy had not realized there was still some unforgiveness in his heart. And it might sound harsh. Why are you going to tell the guy that's been wrong that he has to forgive in order to be free? Because that's what Jesus said. And I watched him walk out of that thing floating on air and free because Jesus' blood sets us free. He's made the highway for us. He's already lifted up the valleys and made the mountains low. He even told us, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you don't even have to make a mountain low. Just tell it to go and it'll go into the sea. Good news. So Father, I pray this goes deep with us this morning. I thank you for your forgiveness of us that we can be free, we can be whole. Bring revival and awakening here. We are ready. We are ready. We are ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.